with the Directors Club podcast, uh, presenting a little bonus uh, episode of sorts. You know, I I have nothing planned out in terms of what I'm going to say for the introduction, and I normally do. It's just more of a stream of consciousness (laughs) kind of uh, purging of thoughts and... It can go either way sometimes with that. Obviously, I'm going to play a clip after this of me and Patrick Rapole talking about the power of the 25th hour, Spike Lee's incredible 2002 masterpiece, and that's for good reason. Uh, Today, I'm recording this on September 11th with a big old cup of coffee. And, you know, it's very hard to talk about what's on my mind or what everyone in the country must be feeling today on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I know it's very easy for me to look at 2001 as the year where everything went to hell. (laughs) Because, you know, basically from the ages of about 18 to 23, I had never felt happier you know, I, I mean, I was still living with my parents. I wasn't doing the college thing, but I was in a band. I'd lost weight. I met somebody very special. I was going to college. I was working in a library, you know, and um, then everything changed in, in that entire year. You know, I just a year prior, I was having parties <laughs> and socializing regularly and having a girlfriend over all the time and and watching movies and feeling great you know I was recording music in in my parents basement that definitely evolved and slowly became among my best work but then in, 2001 came along and destroyed everything and i'm not saying like oh woe is me pity me it's not that at all cuz look at what this country experienced look at what the world went through and, and it's it's hard because you want to be self-reflective and you want to be personal because I always knew that I had depression and anxiety going back to junior high school. But I'd say for a few years, I'd completely forgotten. I, I really felt rather consistent and content for a good stretch. You know, I certainly went to college not knowing what I was going to do other than maybe write and talk about film and existentialism I don't know but in 2001 it just all all that depression and anxiety came rushing back and I feel like 9-11 was this weird tipping point this weird sort of uh, roller coaster of emotion that was (laughs) full of lows and seeing people process everything 
in the same way that people are processing this crazy virus right now. I don't know. There's just something that's hard to wrap my head around. You know, because not only did this country experience something it never had before with the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, but a month after 9-11, my dad passed away from kidney cancer. He was just diagnosed in June of 2001 and then gone in October of 2001. And then a few months after he passed, I'd broken up with someone that I planned to marry. So my mind was a complete mess. And thankfully in 2002, I was writing really cathartic music and I'd seen a film called The 25th Hour uh, and even called my ex on the phone after it was over to tell her how I thought it was one of the most important films I had seen in a long time. And, you know, we'll get to that more with uh, Patrick, but... With all my own personal history out of the way, it's just—it's just—it's safe to say that we, as a country, are forever changed, realizing that we're not safe and sound and holier than thou to some degree. We are very vulnerable. We are capable of profound loss and tragedy within the blink of an eye, but we also have a lot of misguided anger that often turns into this—I don't know—this prolonged series of wars and terrible leadership that has gone on for 20 years and you know the terrible leadership sort of culminated into an insurrection just this past year and i genuinely don't know what to think about the united states knowing its roots its foundation what it was built on and how it continues to mainly be self-centered and capitalistic i'm not saying that's true of every person that lives in this country because it's not but let's just look for a moment at all the documentaries out there currently about 9-11 or even Spike Lee's latest 9-11 documentary on HBO Max. Uh, it's heavy, but he, he does allow for some levity, but it's also uh, incredibly interesting to dissect uh, how New York City has changed over time, especially after this tragedy. And after 9-11, we were all bonding together. You know, right now there's a lot of division and anger and lashing out at others in a way that doesn't feel productive. Um, you know, obviously we all have our own feelings about the vaccine and, and the virus and all that. I just, it's, but still people getting really, really angry when um, somebody makes a choice that's different from yours. I don't know. I don't want to get into that because this is really about how we at some point were collectively coming together over the shock and awe of seeing something like that. You know, whether we were there in New York or we were watching on the news or we were in a completely different part of the country, there was obvious collective trauma unfolding and it continues to prevail. There's no way you can escape it, especially when you're reflecting on a day like today. A lot of people are. I wasn't sure what to write. So I basically just said, well, do what you do and get out a microphone and, you know, talk for a bit before um, before the clip I'm about to play. I think it's about 20 minutes long. And it's, uh, at least pertains to a powerful movie that covers this overall sentiment and uh, I, I just 
can't get over the fact <laughs> that you know Spike Lee uh, was as fearless as he was in telling that story and building it around a fascinating narrative involving this drug dealer going to jail and that final act is almost too hard for me to bear in a lot of ways because it just makes me think of this collective trauma and it makes me think of all the first responders and firefighters who went into the towers and up the stairs with heavy equipment on their back and shoulders. Now let's just think of those people. Let's think of the people that actually helped those who were hurt on the street that day or those who simply just didn't flee. They, 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 they stuck around in hopes of helping others and can you imagine just being in the dust of those collapsed towers? I mean, that's the things we have to think about. And I think that's what all these documentaries are trying to, you know, highlight. But it's it's just this kind of unconditional compassion that I feel is missing from the world today. That there, it was there. It was actually right before our eyes uh, when something like this happened. I think I think people just really know how to come together on social media. You know, when somebody passes away or somebody loses a pet, you know, even just the simple act of commenting is uh, is special. You know, people took the time out to say something or make an action or make the the call to say I'm going to express my condolences and most of the time it's really just something as simple as I'm sorry for your loss and that's People can think of that, oh, that's just so reductive and cliche, but at the same time, I think the fact that people do that is an act of love, um, and I feel we need more of that in our daily lives in general. You know, when I think of that particular day, that morning, I was about to go to my new job at the Shareville Library in Indiana. I had 11 to 7 shift, and I think everything was breaking around 9 a.m. I don't know why I didn't get up earlier. I usually get up around 7 or 8. I'd slept a little later, and uh, my dad and I watched the news as it was unfolding, and all he could say was, this is bad. This is really, really bad. And I think he was in shock and not sure how to process not only what was happening right in front of our eyes on this TV screen, but his recent cancer diagnosis. How do you, you know, internalize or reflect on the fact that you're, you're you're not going to last much longer. And I think seeing all these people um, collectively coming together to help one another or in the worst case scenario, actually watching people tumble to their death, there's just something about that, you know, and everybody described it as it was like a movie. It was like a movie. Well, often movie watching for me is an exercise in empathy. And I think you all know that by now. Uh, and you cannot help but feel, you know, I, the sensitivity radar of everybody around me at that time was just off the charts, and rightfully so, and it should be thought about as an, an incredibly powerful moment in time that we can't forget, and I hope we don't forget, and I don't think we ever could forget, and that's what today is all about. Um, we weren't as isolated than the way we are now. I mean, even me to some degree, instead of writing a bunch of words on Facebook or something, uh, I'm choosing to speak monologue style into a microphone in alone. And, 
sort of channel my thoughts and feelings in a way that I, I would hope is productive. Uh, you know, they say getting it out is better than keeping it in. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like I think about, oh, look at these numbers and these downloads you get for the podcast. Well, what happens with that? <laughs> you know, how am I making a difference or co- connecting to uh, the outside world in a way that is meaningful? Or how do I know that anyone's listening or making an impact? Because all I'm looking at is a bunch of stats and numbers. So it's hard to say, like, oh, even if I said, hey, everybody, everybody that's listening to this, please reach out or, you know, send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com to say, I listened to this and I felt something, or I, too, watched the 25th hour and felt something, or I was there and this is what my experience was. And I would welcome that. I certainly welcome any type of feedback uh, or any type of personal experience about movies that isn't just, oh... I thought this movie was great, or I thought this movie sucked. <laughs> there, I want to hear the personal stories behind why you have a certain response. And I think that's kind of what I just decided to do here, including uh, a clip coming right up here. I just think we should take today to think of the many lives we lost. Um, and the many lives that were truly saved by fearless and heartfelt individuals who took the time and energy and resilience to actually make some kind of positive impact during such a horrendous moment in time, you know, that morning, it was just, how do you, how do you, how do you handle what you're feeling, but also absorb everybody else's energy at the same time? And I think we're continuing to experience that even though, uh, we're not on lockdown, per se. Uh, I, I still think we hear things about vaccines or we hear things about people still dying. Uh, and it's just... the <laughs> You look at stats going on today r- regarding COVID and you just... You kind of go, all right, these are numbers. Just like I was talking about with something minor like the podcast. You know, this is ridiculous. It's kind of like... Oh, these are just numbers. I don't know who these people. I don't know who the who they specifically are, and to me, that's kind of a, a reason why I question if doing something like this is actually beneficial, or it's self-indulgent, or maybe it's just both, and or it's you know neither. It's not black or white. It just is what it is. It's like oh, you put this out there, and who knows. Maybe somebody really gets it, maybe somebody doesn't, or maybe somebody just fast-forwards through it and gets to the good stuff. I don't know. But it's just shocking to me to know that, like, oh, 52 people died in Illinois yesterday from COVID or something, and I, I see numbers like that, and I go, who are these 52 people? I mean, I know because of HIPAA laws, we probably will never know. Uh, and I just wonder, what are we doing <laughs> to handle just the knowledge of okay, that many people have died because of this virus. And, uh, you know, we immediately want to go to, well, were they, were they, were they vaccinated or not? Uh, you know, and honestly, I don't care. <laughs> they're the people. They died. And lots of people died on 9-11. And some of them we have seen jumping to their deaths. And it's just like, how? <laughs> you know, how do these things happen? How do you believe that there is a... a you know, a good 
God overseeing everything and letting these things happen? I don't know. And it's probably because there may not be one, but I'm also not going to resign to that feeling either. Let's just say that we'll never be the same. That entire year changed me in ways that will forever hurt, that have affected my psyche <laughs> for the long haul. And I think that's true of everybody, you know, whether they've lost a parent to cancer or not, whether they lost somebody that was actually in the towers or somebody that went into the towers and tried to help but couldn't. And there's a lot to say, a lot to feel, and I hope that everybody um, takes a moment to reflect as well they should. Perhaps watch the 25th hour if you're emotionally sound or can handle that. Uh, I think that's what art is for, for therapy sometimes. Yes, it's entertainment, but it can be therapeutic. Uh, and I think that's about all. I don't have much more to add. It's just kind of, a, again, a rambling uh, series of thoughts that Either you enjoyed hearing for a little bit or a long bit. <laughs> and if you didn't, that's cool. But um, yeah, I still can't believe what has happened on 9-11 or since then has happened. But let's just hope we can get through it together. Let's just hope that, you know, we can connect or we can communicate or... You know, send send an email. Something as simple as that. Or hug your pet. <laughs> hug a loved one. Uh, you know, just reach out. Let people know how you really feel. Let them know that you feel love. Because you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Or if they're going to get a crazy virus. You know, or cancer. You know, there's just no way to know what will happen tomorrow. But thank goodness for a film like The 25th Hour. <laughs> and now here is former co-host Patrick Rapola and I talking about Spike Lee's masterpiece. For the Spike Lee podcast that we recorded about five years ago, I just clipped it out uh, of there for you to listen to now. It's a good way to remember the power of cinema uh, and how, again, it can be cathartic. Because it was a film that I think I needed at the time. I think we still need, to some extent. So, without further ado, thank you for listening. Thank you to all the first responders who risked their lives to help people on 9-11. And I really appreciate your listenership, the fact that you downloaded this, whether you got through it or not. <laughs> Here is uh, Patrick and I talking about a really special film.
this movie. This is a movie, Patrick. So there is. So in my <laughs> mind. So in my mind, there are two halves at this point. Not everyone has a three act life. At this point, there are two acts to Spike Lee's career. There is pre twenty fifth hour and post twenty fifth hour, because Spike Lee had made two bona fide fucking die in the wool masterpieces with Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. But he had also just sort of continued to make kind of Spike Lee movies with lessering effect and with less acclaim and with less box office. And he it started to feel like, well, Spike Lee was done. Spike Lee, the director, he can shock us with Bamboozled. He can make interesting films, but his peak has passed. Um, and then 25th Hour kind of redefines that because 25th Hour sort of implies – at any moment, Spike Lee could step into a project that he didn't originate yeah. and make a fucking masterpiece. I'll never forget where I was when I first saw this movie and my response, because I am not the type to Tell just, that story. I'm not the type to just react out loud in such a, like, a visceral response to something to where like people look at me and... Like, I almost feel embarrassed for having that response. And that's the mirror sequence in this, to me, summed up everything people were feeling as a result of 9-11 and just feeling constant prejudice and constant paranoia. And like that faction of people over there is like and it's so summed up beautifully in that entire sequence, which, you know, I I figured that's Spike Lee, 100 percent Spike Lee. And it turns out it was in the book. And I was just. You know, I found that out. I found that shocking in of itself. But I was sitting in a room full of stuffy film critics who some of them were taking notes. Um, and when that mirror sequence happened, I I couldn't help but stand up and applaud because of its audacity, because of its fearlessness, because of, again, that reckless sincerity to actually go all out and sum up what a lot of people feel. And the fact that he even does like... You know, slavery ended. Get over it. Something like I didn't think would come out of Spike Lee's mouth at all is here in a moment that says a lot about America. It says a lot about this particular character who's just like full of self-loathing, but also wanting to project all that self-loathing onto other people. Um, but it's one. This movie is just like so. When you an, stood up and applauded, did everyone else like sort of give you a side eye or? Were, yeah. Yeah, they, all thought, they you, all thought it was weird. And then did you sheepishly kind of like lower in your seat, mm-hmm. like comically? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry, guys. Ebert's I couldn't like, help it. Ebert misses like part of the movie because you fucking stood up in front of him. I don't know if Ebert was there. No, but Michael Wilmington did. I'll never forget that. Michael Wilmington, the Chicago Tribune. Um, Eric was Eric Childress was actually sitting next to me, and you know, he's like, calm down. No, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, and I still have. Like, from beginning to end, a, a powerful reaction to almost everything in this movie. Because I associate 9-11 with a lot of things. Obviously, with the event itself, but just my father passed away. And I'd say from the moment that Monty comes home after being beat up, and is just lying on the couch and starts crying, and then his dad comes to pick him up, I'm just gone. Like, I'm sobbing uncontrollably through pretty much the entire duration of this movie. Um, I think... 
I think Barry Pepper is so fucking good in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. almost in one scene, it's sort of some stuff like what Wolf of Wall Street did in three hours with just like what it is to what it's like to work in that environment on Wall Street. Um, and you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman does Philip Seymour Hoffman the the, the sad sack really beautifully here. Um, I want more films like this. Period. I want more filmmakers to kind of have the balls that Spike Lee has to simply just dive right into all these conflicting feelings that were happening at at that time. Um, Because, like, originally he was just going to adapt this novel because he felt it was almost going to be kind of like a clocker situation. He was just going to adapt a novel. But then after what happened in New York, he could not shy away from that, even though pretty much the rest of Hollywood was shying away from it to where, oh, collateral damage has the... You know the, the the World Trade Center. In it. We can't release that movie. Uh, you know for a while. Yeah, yeah. But Spike Lee's like, fuck that. Remove all the promos where Spider Man's in between the two towers. Yeah, yeah. And let's remove him out of Zoolander. But um, yeah. I this this is just one of the more powerful emotional experiences of my lifetime. Is this movie? I I and I just love everything. It's it's kind of a crazy because the the book was released January two thousand one. So it's kind of, and it was already being, yeah, like you said, it was already being adapted, and it's, I don't think this movie would be, <laughs> it does not justify 9-11. <laughs> I will just say this movie would not be as good if 9-11 never happened. And the score here, like, normally I'd find it kind of questionable in trying to um, evoke an emotional re- response from its audience. Well, it like, feels like a Spike Lee score. It's yeah. sort of this mournful it's horn very, section. It's very memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just the opening credits, the, uh, the spotlights and all that stuff. Like, I, I don't know, man. And even just... The sound of the dog over the Touchstone logo? Yeah. And to me, like, the dog kind of just represents a lot of us at that time. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's, again, like a movie about empathy. Uh, it's a movie to like even just specific scenes of guys hanging out and having conversations I find very genuine um, you know that the scene where they're looking outside of Barry Pepper's apartment out the window that's and that's all done in one take and one shot is just that's that conversation they have is is fantastic so I mean I can't I yeah. it's, it's hard <laughs> for me to imagine this movie like to me so much of what this movie is is about 9-11, but also in a way that it would only have made sense if Spike Lee made it in 2009 instead of 2000, <laughs> 2000 2002. Yeah. Because this is a film where it's... So, he's going away for seven years. That's how many years we had left with Bush. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm going to start down this whole fucking thing where it's like George W. Bush. That's 14 letters. Now, that's also 14 letters in Taliban lies. Uh-oh, so what? Theory. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to fucking Back go. to the Future predicted 9-11. No, but like, this is just the only way I can watch this movie now. And it's, you know, it's set up in the opening credits uh, as that movie. You know, it's the choice he made. But like, I... Mm. <laughs> so there, he's going away for seven years. That's how long we were... That's that's how long we were stuck with Bush. Uh, he has the right. He has the aggressive right wing on his right, and he has the ineffectual liberals on his left. <laughs> um, it's 
it's not like a strict allegory. Everyone, like, Anna Paquin represents Kenneth Starr. Like, no, I don't know. Like, oh, jeez. <laughs> but um, let's not go there. Yeah, Ugh. but uh, but um, it's not you know, it's not a direct allegory or anything. But like, just the way I watch this, it feels like an elegy for an America that could have been, especially that ending and that, <laughs> which is the clockers ending. Yeah, it is. Or raising con- Arizona. Spike Lee constantly <laughs> quotes himself. What has, how does raising Arizona end? Well, just like Nicolas Cage picturing his life years down the road as like an old man. With oh, his, really? Yeah, with Holly Hunter and stuff. Yeah. I was always thinking of it as the thing that Harvey Keitel is saying to strike, you know, that right too. before he gets him on the train. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. But whatever. Uh, fuck it. I'll just say it. Uh, I don't think America is a good place, and I think America is only going to get worse until it collapses. And I don't know if America ever was a good place, but I think that the terrorists absolutely 100 percent won because 9-11 ensured that it never would be. It It is like the hot it, 9-11 was the hottest day in Do the Right Thing, where there is all of this shit under the surface that could have worked that maybe could have gone the other way that maybe we could have gotten our shit together Mm -hmm. and become a good people but actually uh an outside source it it, i mean we didn't cause uh, debatable we didn't cause (laughs) 9-11 i don't even get into into all that not even not let's get alex jones on the show no no not in that way but in the way that we create islamic extremists by whatever i'm not even getting even into that but um I think that has set us down to the path where now Trump is a serious contender for the president of the United States of America. And that is all that all ties back to uh, hatred and xenophobia and American exceptionalism and everything that was all spurned on by 9-11. And it feels like there's this other path we could have gone. We could have we could have been a nice country. And like that whole ending where he's thinking about the life he could have had. It, it, I just, I just fucking weep because that's oh, that's, know, just, that's right? just what it means to me. Is like, it could have gone the other way. It feels like maybe it could have gone the other way, but now like Barack Obama has been at war longer than any American president in history, and we'll probably just be at war <laughs> for the rest of our history as a nation. Like, yeah. it's it's fucking tragic, and I don't know. Like, I'm I'm sorry to get political especially because i'm not an informed person <laughs> so yeah no, i'm not true. i i i have a lot of i have a lot of anger and anxiety but i don't have a lot of actual fucking facts so you could be rolling your eyes at home and that's fine but like that that's what this movie <laughs> means to me and also it's like a perfect character study and it's just a perfect script it's a perfect story um, perfect acting from everybody yeah yeah everyone everyone is fantastic um it was interesting that as you were you were talking about your thoughts on America that the sunshine went away for a while. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I was I, like, I, yeah. why did the room get so dark because, as you're saying all this? Because God agreed with me and the <laughs> sun just went behind a cloud and I'm so lonesome I could cry. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I, I, it's tough for me because I, I think of that, maybe that final montage, and I agree with your sentiments about America in general. To me, it really is because of how strongly I associate 9-11 with the loss of my dad. I um, I think of that ending as what life could have been if he'd still been around, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why that movie um, really affects me. Uh, I so. have a question about, <laughs> just about the movie itself. Mm. Um, do you think there's any ambiguity in, in the ending? No. 
He went to prison. Yes. Okay. I absolutely 100% agree. I know people were having that question of like, did his father stay on the expressway or did he not turn off to... Yeah, like, I don't even think it's implying ambiguity. Yeah. I just think it is... I think I just think it would be too cruel to cut away from the from the Mm -hmm. fantasy. Yeah, I think it lets him have that fantasy as like, but I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's any ambiguity. He went to prison. One hundred percent. If he doesn't go to prison, that movie is meaningless. Yeah, I just like even just the 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 slow you know uh, dolly shot of all the people as he's driving away. It's like. In real life, they would not be smiling at this bruised up oh, guy no, yeah, in the car, no, it's, but it's so it goes. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it sort it's of, like it's a, pretty, it's a it's not a it's not a super flashy Spike Lee movie, um, other than the mirror scene. But it is, but like it definitely dips more into uh, that surreal expressionist sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, towards yeah. the end there. everybody for listening to this thank you to patrick for his incredible insights as always uh check out his show at tracks of the damned over on the now playing network at nowplayingnetwork.net and directorsclubpodcast.com and send an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com see you for the richard donner episode very soon